0: Good morning and welcome to Unashamed in the Neighborhood. And um, we're going to take our Bibles for our first verse this morning, but before we do that, I always want to have a prayer to begin. I want to welcome you. I know you come from many parts of the country, and what about the world? Outside of the United States? All right, good. One hand, two hand, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, excellent. The world's a big place, but it's very small in, in the scope of eternity, isn't it? Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, I want to thank you this morning for coming to my neighborhood. I want to thank you, Lord, that you have sought and saved each one of us, and that you offer us, Lord, such a wonderful gift. I pray that we will appreciate that and that we will see in the eyes and the hearts of the people around us a longing desire to have the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you've already sent us to, your, to our neighborhoods. And I pray now that you will equip us and empower us and that you will bless this time this morning, Lord, with the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we will learn something that will make us more effective in sharing Jesus with the people that you love so much. We dedicate this time to you. Lord, I pray that you will take my mind and my heart and that you'll speak through me. I pray that it will be your words and not my words. Bless each one of us in this room, Lord. Take our minds, Lord, and open them to the things that you want us to learn. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 and verse 29. Our theme this year for GYC is Unashamed. And this particular class is Unashamed in Your Neighborhood. If you turn with me again to Luke chapter 10 and verse 29. We'll be reading together here. In Luke chapter 10, verse 29, it says, But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And you know, there are times in our life when we ask Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? How do you want me to live my life while I'm on this earth so that it makes the most difference? And Jesus says, I want you to go to your neighbor. And then there are times when we say, well... Surely my neighbor is not the person over there, right? And surely my neighbor is not the person over there, and surely my neighbor is not the person sitting next to me, and surely my neighbor is not my enemy, right? Well, surely my neighbor is not my family. It must be somebody way over there. And so there are times when we justify ourselves and say, you know, I think the pastor should visit that person, or I think somebody else should visit that person. But who does Jesus send us to? He sends us to our neighbor. Well, the context of this story is the story about a man who needed help. This was the man on the Jericho Road that had fallen among thieves and he needed help. So who does Jesus send us to and how does he define our neighbor? The person that's in our pathway who needs our help. Yeah. Well, this morning we're gonna talk about a challenge in reaching our neighbors. How many of you have taken a piece of literature, even maybe written a Bible study, and just been so excited because you are going to share something with your neighbor, and you go to hand it to them, or you go and ask them, would you like to do Bible studies? Would you like to know about Jesus and study the Bible? And what is, what's their reply? You've, you've heard the replies. Tell me what you hear. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Okay, anyone else? I'll let you know. I'll let you know, I'll get back with you, right? (laughs) I'll let you know, maybe someday, sometime. Um, Anyone else have a reply that you've had as you've gone to share in your neighborhood? I really like my church, I I go to Bible study in my church, I'm really involved, oh, I study the Bible every day. Yes, back there? I'm really interested in my career right now. I'm really interested in my career right now, okay, kind of busy, right? Yeah, anyone else, someone on this side, yes? Christina? Ah, no, that's a forward-thinking person. I don't want to study right now because I might learn something that I don't want to know, all right? Okay, so there's a lot of fear and a lot of of things to work through to reach a neighborhood. Now, what is our theme here at GYC this year? In 2009, the last day of 2009, okay? Unashamed, and where should we be unashamed? In our neighborhood, what did you say? of the gospel. Amen. Unashamed of the gospel. So now, what happens to you, honestly, when someone says, I'm not interested? I'll study later. I really like my church, which means I really don't like yours, right? <laughs> uh, what, it, what happens to us naturally, humanly, as we hear all these things? We start to with- retreat a little bit, don't we, sometimes? And we start to think, well, maybe my neighborhood really is a hard place to work how many have heard that? I used to travel as a Bible worker, and I loved the greeting I would get in every place. I would walk into the new church where I was going to be a Bible worker and, you know, meet everybody, and then I'd get called aside. It's really a hard place to work here. just wanted you to know that. I'm like, good. <laughs> That's where Jesus, Jesus wants me to go then. So many times we see our neighborhood and we say, oh, it's so hard to reach this place and it makes us retreat a little bit. But what does it mean to be unashamed? Don't retreat, retreat. that's right. Okay, so who's your neighborhood? Anyone anyone who is in in your path who needs your help. (coughs) May I suggest that the person right next to you may be your neighbor right now? Do you realize that right here in this auditorium there may be somebody who's losing hope? There may be someone in this auditorium here who's wondering and looking for direction from God. Could it be that your neighbor is right sitting next to you or a couple pews ahead or behind? Your neighborhood can be your family. Your neighborhood can be your physical neighborhood, fellow church members. So our neighborhood is the person that is in our pathway who who most needs our help. Alright, well we're looking today at a challenge that we face as we reach our neighborhood and that challenge is awakening a spiritual interest. Now are, are your neighbors interested in food at dinner time? Yep. Yes, they recognize their need of food. For the most part, do your neighbors recognize their need for people, relationships, an employer, um, p- service providers, people to interact with? Do your neighbors recognize that need? Yes. In general, people recognize their need for food, for water, for shelter, for transportation, for people in their life, at least the people that they need and want in their life, right? They recognize those needs. And I like to think of those needs as kind of surface needs. Those are the outward needs. Those are the needs that people feel. And we, we talk about felt-need ministries, And we teach people how to lose weight when they want to lose weight, how to quit smoking. We have a lot of felt-need ministries. But how do you break through that barrier and get to the deeper level where a person has a desperate and crucial need for God? How do you awaken that spiritual interest so when you knock on their door, when you go to their home, when you reach out to them and when you talk to them, they actually respond with a desire to know the gospel that you present to them. This is one one of our first challenges in evangelism and reaching our neighborhood is how do you awaken their desire? How do you awaken their need for the gospel that they don't think they need right now? Well, there's a common fear as we reach our neighbors and that is I don't know enough. Do you know enough? No, I don't know enough either. They might ask a question and I won't know the answer. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. They might ask a question and I won't know the answer because I don't know all the answers and neither do you. But I'd like to suggest that there's a greater challenge. The greater challenge is that we do have the answers. Now, how many in this room can quote at least one Bible verse? Look, the hands go up. You have one Bible verse that you can quote and, and many more, I'm sure. So do you have an answer to at least one question? You do. How many of you own a Bible? So you have access to all the answers to all the questions, amen? Do you believe the Bible is that comprehensive? Okay, so we have a lot of answers, don't we? How many of you know how to use a concordance? Yes. Yeah, so can you say to someone, that's a really good question, let me look it up and get back with you? Yeah, so now, do we really have a problem about not being able to find the answer? How many of you have a telephone and you could call somebody up and maybe an evangelist or a pastor or someone who studies the Bible a lot and, and have them help you find an answer but what 's the big challenge? We have the answers, but people are not asking the questions. Now think about your neighbors. Is that true? You know they might ask for directions to a new store in town or want to know what time the sale is going to be going on at the particular store that they want to go to, but they may not be asking the question, how do I get to heaven? They may not be asking that question. And so the bigger challenge is that we have the answers, but people are not asking the questions. And I want you to imagine for a minute that you decided to reach out to your neighbors or a friend or a family member and you found out what their favorite foods were and let's just say that it was lasagna and so you bake this succulent lasagna and you just put all the best ingredients and you, you spend time and you make it the best it can possibly be and then you bake your famous cheesecake and you have their several choices of salad dressings and a nice green salad and the garlic bread and and as you walk in your own house it, oh, it just smells so good and you invite some people over for a meal And so they come and they're very gracious, they come in and they sit down. and So you seat them at the table. You've put out your best china. You're ready for them. You've prepared the best meal. Now some of you probably know where I'm going with this. You've prepared the best Bible study, just the perfect literature for the interests of your neighbors and you have it all prepared. So the people sit down at the dinner table there and and you serve them and you're just anticipating that they're just gonna eat it up and ask for seconds. And they start picking at the food. And they just pick at it, and your dream of serving them up seconds just kind of vanishes. And so you wonder, what's wrong? You know, and you taste the food yourself, and you wonder, you know, did, I, did I forget the salt or something? You know? And you start to wonder, did I do something wrong with this meal? And as the folks sit down, and, and then they excuse themselves, and you visit a little bit, aren't you hungry? And they tell you, I already ate right before I came. <gasps> Sure. Yeah, no problem. I already ate right, right before I came. Now, was the problem the food? No, the problem wasn't the food. What was the problem? The appetite wasn't there, was it? The desire, the thirst, the hunger wasn't there. And so, again, I want to repeat that one of our greatest challenges in evangelism is to awaken that desire, to awaken that interest. To connect with people at times when their appetite is strong. When they're hungry for the gospel. When they are thirsty for Jesus. Because you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And that's one of our greatest challenges in evangelism. So one of our greatest challenges in evangelism is awakening that thirst and awakening that desire. Now, I like that thing about bringing a horse to water, but you can't make him drink because the rest of it goes, but you can salt his oats. Now, how do we salt? salt the gospel? The Bible says something about salt. Do you remember that verse in the Bible about salt? God is the salt of the earth. It's God's job to awaken spiritual interest. Did I misquote it? What does it say? We are the salt of the earth. So whose job is it to awaken the spiritual interest and activate the thirst and the hunger of people? Huh. It's interesting, isn't it? If I am the salt of the earth, what is my job? My job is to season the gospel, if you will, to represent the gospel in a way that will awaken a thirst for the water of life. So how do you do that? Have you been challenged? Have you been a a little bit perplexed as you work with people? This says that true education is not the forcing of instruction on an unready and unreceptive mind. Have you met some people like that? You want to share the gospel with them, but they're just not ready for it. They're not receptive. They're not open to it. It says the mental powers must be awakened. The interest must be aroused. Okay, so we got to pique that interest. It's only when the sinner feels the need of a savior that his heart goes out or goes after the one who can help him. And then another one, it says before there can be an intense desire, wouldn't you love to give Bible studies to someone who has an intense desire for the gospel? Wouldn't that be exciting? I, I've studied with some people. I remember one lady in particular. I would sit down and I would start the Bible study with her, and I noticed she was a little absent minded. So I asked her, What's on your mind? Uh, she's like, I couldn't sleep. I, I couldn't sleep. I woke up in the middle of the night, and she said, I want to know how to give my heart to Jesus. Oh, I mean, doesn't it just send chills up your spine, you know, as you think about studying with someone like that? And, and um, this was one of my first Bible studies ever. God is good, isn't he? <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, I don't know how to lead someone to Jesus. That's that sad, isn't it? I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, Lord, what do I do? And I started to say, why don't we study that next week? And the Lord stopped me mid-sentence. No, I needed to study it when? Now. When was she thirsty? Now. When was she hungry? Now. She was right then. When had God helped, you know, to awaken that spiritual interest? And so I'm like, Lord, Lord which verse first? And the Lord gave me really powerful three or four verses. And she gave her life to Jesus. And you know the next Bible study, you want to know what she said? How do you get ready for baptism? I want, to get, I want to get baptized. I want to give my life to Jesus. What did she have? An intense desire, right? She had a very intense desire, enough to take her sleep away. Before there can be an intense desire for the wealth contained in Christ, which is available to all who feel their poverty, again, that's the issue. People are not feeling, identifying their need for Jesus. There must be a sense of need. Now, I want to ask you a question. Are you out there in your neighborhood alone trying to give Bible studies to people? Are you there all by yourself? You feel like it, right? But are you? Who has gone before you? Who is already on the scene of action in your neighborhood with your family God is there through the Holy Spirit, through angels, through other influences. God is on the scene of action. Is it possible then that God has been working to awaken spiritual interest in your neighbors? And then at the right time God wants to bring you in contact with that person. Right at the time when that thirst and that hunger is at its peak. And then you can share the gospel. Yes, it is true. There are many things that have to happen in a person's life to awaken their spiritual need. And those things cannot be done by you. Yes, you are the salt of the earth. Yes, you have a part to play, and yes, I do. But there are some things that must happen in a person's life in order to awaken their spiritual need that you cannot do. Let's think about this for a minute. What are the times when people are most receptive to the gospel? This is interactive. I want, I want you involved. What are some of the times? Death of the death of a loved one. And I'm going to... Divorce. A Divorce. The death of a loved, loved one. Anyone else? Any hardship in life, and I want to summarize that by saying the times when people lose the things they're holding on to. Now, there's this God shaped void inside of the heart. It needs to be filled by God. Nothing else fits. But guess what we do with other things? We shove them in, right? We make them fit, right? So people have family. They have loved ones, they have worldly possessions that are good things, and those are filling that God-shaped void. No, it doesn't work. No, it's not really happy, but it makes people feel like they're full, makes people feel like they're satisfied temporarily. It temporarily works. So, what could happen to awaken a person's spiritual need and bring them more in touch with their need for God? they could lose the very things that they hold on to, right? It could be a job, it could be a pet, it could be a family member, it could be a car, it could be health, people lose things. Now is it your job to make them go through that crisis? Should you go smash their car? (laughs) Should you go make a crisis in their life? No, that's not our job, is it? But who allows those things to happen in a person's life? No, God does not cause the evil in the world, but God does allow it, and He does allow people to go through through crises, so that that emptiness can be emptied and filled by Him. And so people are going to go through crises that awaken spiritual interest. When the heart is full of self-sufficiency, I'm all set, don't need Bible studies, doing fine. When the heart is full of self-sufficiency and preoccupied with the superficial things of earth, the Lord Jesus rebukes and chastens in order that men may awake to a realization of their true condition. And so people are going to go through hardships. Have you ever heard the story of the mother eagle? The mother eagle is a master trainer. She wants her young eaglets to rise and fly and take their position high, high up on the mountain peaks and up in the air. But in order to do that, they have to leave the nest. So they don't want to leave the nest. You know what happens in the nest? They get fed, they get cared for, they get protected, they get sheltered from all the storms. It's really comfortable. And people are comfortable in their nest. They have the people in their life, the things in their life, the, the reputation, the status, the job, the fulfillment. And they don't recognize that underneath it all there's this aching void, this need, this crying out after God. So they think they're okay. They're comfortable in that nest. Do you know what the mother eagle does? She takes the feathers out of the nest. You know what's underneath the feathers? Sharp, strong sticks. And it starts to get uncomfortable. They don't like their nest anymore. And they might even start grumbling against mother eagle. Now, do you have some people in your neighborhood that maybe are grumbling against God a little bit? I want you to mark that down. If you hear someone who has a little bit of anger, a little bit of a gripe with God, they are ripe for the gospel. You want to know why? Because they're talking about God. And it might not be happy talk yet, right? Right? but they're talking, and that is an awesome step toward Jesus. And if God puts you in the, in the pathway of someone who's grumbling and griping against God, realize that they are on the path to Jesus, and you can help them. You can be part of that awakening process of awakening their spiritual needs so that they're wide open for Bible studies. Amen? It's exciting, isn't it? So she takes the feathers out of the nest. Is that all she does? She gets them on the edge. Well, I think they get themselves on the edge because they don't really like the nest anymore, right? So they get on the edge, but that's as far as they go. Are there people in your neighborhood who kind of have a little curiosity, but they're on the edge and they're not going to come to your Bible study? They're not going to come to your evangelistic meetings. They're not going to even say that they're interested. Where are they? They're on the edge. And what does the mother eagle do? She bumps them off, and they go plummeting through the air. But before they get hurt, she swoops under them and picks them up and, and lifts them up again and then comes out from under them and lets them plummet again. It's a fascinating story about how the eagle learns to fly. Does Jesus want your neighbor, neighbors to rise and fly to heaven? Yeah. Is he going to allow some crises in their life that shake up their worldly nest so that they will start to long for something better. And when someone is longing for something better, they are very close to the gospel and their heart is opening so that they can receive the gospel. Okay, did I just lock up? Looks like it. So what are some of the crises that God will take a person through and allow them to go through in order to be open to the gospel? If anyone is computer savvy, you're welcome to fix my computer <laughs> and get it going, but I don't want to lose time trying to fool with it here. The space bar, no, it's not working. Escape's not working. What's that? Okay. Woohoo. Thank you very much. Praise the Lord. (laughs) That's wonderful. I can go by memory, but I prefer not to. The Lord permits conflicts to prepare the soul for peace. So God uses crises to awaken spiritual interest. I want to look at one crisis that we often overlook. Remember when we were talking about a crisis that can awaken a person in your neighborhood to be open to the gospel? What what kind of things did we list? Losing, you know, divorce, loss of a loved one, you know, loss of health, and things like that. But I want to start with another crisis that is not always recognized. And this is the crisis of Getty. Now, if you've ever watched the movie Chariots of Fire, you remember the storyline. There's a couple runners in there. There's um, Eric, and there is Harold. Now, Eric is a Christian. Now, Eric has a dream for his life. Anyone watch it here? Remember what his dream was? What was his dream? To go to China. His life was wrapped up in going to China. He had a mission for his life. He was a Christian, and every pulse beat of his heart, every pumping of his heart was, was geared toward that. That was his reason for living. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? He had a real purpose in life. He was also a runner. And he says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. He's, he was fast, he was good, and so he, he ran for the fun of it. He just loved the thrill of speed and things like that. And so he would do that, and he would run, and he would run, and he would run. But his heart and his mind was always in China and the mission. He had a real mission for his life while he was on earth. Now, Harold, on the other hand, was not a Christian, had no faith, had no purpose in life. Now, Harold was a runner. Guess what he ran to do? He ran to win. But at the race... There was, I forget if it was 30 or 45 seconds that it mentions, where his mind was suddenly gripped with panic. And the panic was not that he would lose. The panic was, what if I win? And it's not all I hoped it would be. Now, there are a lot of people who will not look to God until they're flat on their back. That's the crisis of losing. But there are many other people who will not look up to God until they're as high as they can get on their own. Mm -hmm. So as long as I'm trying to get that job, as long as I'm trying to graduate with this particular GPA or this particular degree, as long as my heart is set on marrying that girl, or marrying that man, or having this, this many kids, or going on that cruise. As long as my heart is wrapped up and set on all these things that I just have to have to be happy, as long as that is my mindset, I am determined and I am convinced that that will make me happy, and do not get in my way. Don't get in my way, because I am pursuing this, I have to have it, and when I get it, I will be happy. Now, in our Christian minds, a little warning goes off ding, 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 ding. That's not where happiness is found, is it? But in their minds, as you come and you say, Would you like to do Bible studies? Well, let me check my calendar. I'm busy that night. Would you like to, um, you know, may I share a book with you? I'd really like for you to take time to read it. I have some great DVDs I want you to watch. What happens in their minds? They're too busy doing something that is very important to them. Why is it so important? The reason it's so important is there's this God-shaped void for belonging, for identity, for a future, for a reason to live, for somebody who loves me, for somebody who says I'm worth it and I'm valuable. And I have to have that GPA in order to feel those things. And I have to have that new car in order to feel these things. And I have to have X number of bright, brilliant kids in order to feel all those things inside. What they don't know is that those goals will not give them the happiness they're looking for, but don't you dare convince them otherwise. Why? Because they haven't done it yet. And it's not until they do what? Get it. It's not till they achieve it. It's not till they climb that mountain and get to the top and look down and go, ugh. Oh. You know, that's basically what happens. The thirst suddenly turns to nausea because you work so hard, I mean some people will work 60, 70 years for this goal, for this elusive goal and they will not listen to the gospel until they get it. Now have you ever wondered why some people are millionaires at, I mean, 25, (laughs) 30? Why does God allow some people to get so rich and so blessed and so successful so fast? Do you think maybe God knows that there are some people who will never look up until they're at the top? And so he allows them to get there fast. And we Christians, in a short-sighted way, sometimes look and go, man, I'm jealous. Don't be. Mm -hmm. They're just going really fast toward a crisis at the top. And so God meets people at the top. Now the top may not look like the top to you. Here's an example. Maybe your top of the world would be you know, a vacation, um, you know, in the Alps somewhere. I don't know what your, your dream is. Maybe some, woo that would be awesome experiences. It's one thing in your mind. You know, for somebody else, it may be losing 20 pounds. Or coming to GYC. Or coming to GYC, all right. <laughs> but let's take someone who just really feels like, I will be beautiful, I will be loved, I will be wanted, I will be successful if I can lose 20 pounds. You follow what I'm saying. Watch people and their goals in your neighborhood. Notice what makes them tick, what drives them, what they're reaching toward, what they admire, what they really want, because those goals are gonna represent peaks in their life. Now, the very person who loses that 20 pounds, watch how they go through that experience. You might notice that two weeks later, they're depressed. What has just happened? They reached a mountaintop in their life and it wasn't all that they thought it would be. And so now they're going back down. Now those mountaintop experiences that people go through in your neighborhood, those are divine appointments where God wants to bring you into their life. You may have knocked on their doors a thousand times, please excuse the exaggeration, but I think you follow what I'm saying. You may have knocked on their door spiritually, offered them so many things up until that point. No, 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 not interested. But if you can come at just the right moment and say, give them 32 Bible studies. No. Say one or two sentences at that key point when they're disillusioned. One or two sentences like, you know, there was a time when I really wanted a new job and I got it, and after I got it, I realized something was still missing, even just that much would be a huge foot in the spiritual door to reach that person. Because just a few sentences at that peak time of spiritual thirst or spiritual hunger can go so much further than 32 Bible studies. We want to give them a taste how do you sell a new food product? How do you convince someone that you have a really good cheesecake recipe? Tell them how great it is. them how great it is. You make them five cheesecakes, right? Now, what do you give them? You give them a sample. You give them a little taste. Now, if they're hungry, how good is it going to taste? Really good. If they just ate all their favorite things, how good is it going to taste? Not so good. So if you give a person a sample of the gospel, a sample of your personal testimony at a time when they're at that crisis of getting, when they're at that mountaintop, that peak, just about to get disillusioned and go down, how good is it going to taste to them? Wonderful. And when they get hungry again, what are they going to remember? The cheesecake, all right. <laughs> when they get spiritually hungry again and they go through a hard time, who are they going to think of? You. Because you were the one who prayed with them. You were the one who said those interesting words at, at that key point in their life. Okay, so one of the, one of the ways that God awakens spiritual interest with your neighbors is the crisis of getting. And people get a lot of things. They get things. They get relationships with people. They get religion without Jesus, is there a lot of religion without Jesus out there? And I wanna suggest that a lot of the hungry people are in church, don't overlook the neighborhood in your church, because just because someone has come in the door, been baptized, doesn't mean that they've been spiritually satisfied. It may just be a form, the Bible talks about a man who had an amazing spiritual experience, if you will, he was possessed with demons, and Jesus came to this man, and he was delivered from the evil spirits, and it says his life was swept. What does that mean? What does it mean when your life is swept spiritually? Jesus says, you know that that habit over there. It doesn't please me. And he sweeps it where? Out. Out. And he cleans up your life, right? It means you're not living you're not living together anymore. It means you're Got your own apartment or you got married, right? It means you're not drinking anymore. It means you're not logging onto those websites anymore. Your life is swept. Your life has been cleaned up. And then it goes on in the Bible to say that this man's life was also garnished. What does it mean to be garnished spiritually? Well, when you garnish a table or when you um, fix up a house, you put all the things there that look nice, right? And it looks beautiful. So what are the things that look beautiful in a Christian's life? Yeah, fruits of the Holy Spirit, okay. And what about missionary work? So here's a person who's been delivered from the devil, from the evil spirits. Here's a person whose life is cleaned up. They're not doing those things anymore. They're not involved in those activities anymore. They're not watching those movies anymore. They're not listening to that music anymore. But not only that, their life is also garnished. Do you have any neighbors whose life is exemplary as far as you can tell? They may be really, really, really strong Christians, it seems like, they're out there garnished. They're feeding the homeless. They're garnished with good works. They're singing in the choir. They're attending Bible study at their church, possibly, or your church. They're doing all these different things. And then the Bible mentions one other word, which is the fateful word. Swept, garnished, and, is anyone familiar with this Bible story? Empty. So what happened? These are religious people, right? These people, maybe they got the things of life, they got the people of life, the relationships that they wanted, and they're riding the wave up. And not only that, they feel a spiritual need, and so their life is filling up spiritually with good works, and they're getting rid of those habits in their life. But there's one key word there. It says they're swept, garnished, and empty. Now what happens when you're empty? The emptiness of the God-shaped void is not just in inactive emptiness, this little spot that, be nice if it was filled. The emptiness that we have spiritually is actually a vacuum. That means it's tugging and pulling and trying to fill itself 100% of the time. 24/7. this vacuum is trying to be filled. It's tugging, it's pulling, it's like a black hole. It's just pulling things in, trying, trying desperately to be filled. And so sometimes people are doing the good works to fill the vacuum. Sometimes people are religious in order to fill the vacuum and to feel valuable and to feel like life is worth living, to have a purpose. But until you meet who? Jesus. Until you really fall in love with Jesus and find out that the reason for living is to get up every day and see the smile on God's face and to walk and talk with Him in service and to get ready for eternity. Until you realize that, your life is still empty. And so that emptiness, until you find Jesus, will often lead people from things to people to religion to addictions. You know, that food tasted really good. That glass of grape juice tasted really good. But now I need something stronger. So what does it turn to? Something with a little kick to it. Something with a little bit of a more effect. Something that can either numb me, because I don't like the nameless longing that, that... rustles inside of me, something that will numb it or something that will satisfy it and something that will wake me up a little bit, something with a little bit more to it. And so the glass of grape juice turns to a glass of wine. The good websites turn to bad websites. The good relationships go wrong. And in their place come a lot of perversions and a lot of excess. And then the person asks a question. What question do you ask when you've tried everything and you're still not happy, you're at the top, and you've done everything you can do, everything that looked good to do? You've been there, done that. Now what do you ask? Now what? Then what? What do I do now? What do you do when you're you're already at the top? You look a little higher? And where, where do you look when you look beyond this earth? You look to heaven. You look to God. And so again, the experience of reaching out to our neighbors can be very frustrating when you offer the gospel to them and they're not interested. However, if you are on your knees, watching and praying, spending time with your neighbors as their friend with no purpose other than to know them, No purpose other than to what? To know them. Did you know that Jesus came to know us? In Genesis chapter 3, it tells about the first evangelistic trip that Jesus ever made to planet Earth. He came to see Adam and Eve. What were Adam and Eve doing then? What did they happen to be doing right then? (laughs) They were eating the forbidden fruit. What did they think about the forbidden fruit? At that moment, they thought it was wonderful. Did they feel a spiritual need to walk and talk with Jesus right then? No. Their, their hands were dripping with the juice of this amazing fruit that God had said don't eat. And so your neighbors, their, their hands may be dripping with the pleasures of this world. They may be so engrossed in this life that when you go to present the gospel to them, they're like, no thanks. I mean, that's like dry bread compared to the delicacy, you know? And so that's how they view the gospel. Now, Jesus came into the garden. Does anyone remember what the first question was that Jesus asked Adam? Yeah. What is it that you've done? Mm-hmm. What did yeah. you do? Didn't I tell you not to do this? Mm-hmm. Is that what he said? Mm-hmm. He said, Adam, where are you? And it wasn't the condemning, where are you? The little bit that I've come to know of God. It was not the con- condemnation. It was Adam... Where are you? I want to be with you. If you're going to reach your neighbors, wherever they are, you need to want to be with them. Can we say that together? We need to want to be with them. Yes, not to change them, but to be with them. So Jesus came into the garden. He wanted to be with him, didn't he? And you hear it in the longing. Adam, where are you? Where, where, where are you? I mean, every other day, Adam and Eve had run up and met him and greeted him and wanted to spend that evening walk with him or evening or morning, whatever the cool of the day was, and longed to t- talk to Jesus and spend time with him. And then later on, after he can look him in the eye and see him face to face and let him know that he still loves him, After they can see his love and his longing desire for them, then he says, what is this that you've done? Now, sometimes we have it backwards. Okay, I have a neighbor. I want to share the gospel with them. They're smokers, so I'm going to help them quit smoking. Well, that's fine if they're coming to you and saying, please help me stop smoking. But if they're not coming to you, what is that doing? It's getting it backwards. It's doing behavior before you do, I want to be with you. And so we should always want to be with a person, to know where they are, to walk and talk with them, and to spend that time with them in friendship, even if they never quit smoking. And then, at the right time, you can talk to them about that. We have a lady that we're working with right now. And uh, as we've been working with her, her whole focus has been on her boyfriend. Because he needs to change. Well, she's a very, very strong Baptist lady And I happen to know that Baptists generally believe that it's not good to live with each other. They generally have that understanding. And she's living with her boyfriend. And I've been wondering, when is that gonna come up? But you know, she spent Thanksgiving dinner with us. She didn't have a place to go. Some things had happened and she didn't have a place to go. She has been on the phone with us many times. We've been at her home many times. We've helped her a little bit financially, not a lot. She's she's a very financially responsible person, but she needed a little bit of help. And one day, after a lot of time and a lot of hours, she was telling me about her son and how proud she is of her son and and how he told her just recently, Mom, thank you for the values that you gave me. Thank you for teaching me to, to be morally upright. She says, you know, he won't sleep with a girl. He only dates them. He doesn't sleep with them. He has really strong morals. And she said, you know, I'm really proud of him. And then the conversation led. I really don't remember how it happened, but somehow it came up to the point. And I said, yeah, I've wondered if you and were married. She said, no, we're not. We're living together. And I asked her, I said, does that bother you? Does it weigh on you? She said, yes, it does. And, you know, at that point, I didn't preach her a sermon. What does she already have? She already knows. And people usually already know. But until you get that friendship with them, they're not going to admit it. They'll excuse it and defend it unless you are their friend. And if you're their friend, they'll say, yeah, it bothers me. And I I simply said, I'm going to pray for you that God will give you strength to do the right thing. Did I need to say anything more? No, No, not really. Because God is already talking to her, right? And if God is talking to her, who am I to interrupt, right? Mm -hmm. I just need to reinforce and be there and be her friend. And so first we need to be with people, and then we can help them with their behavior. When I get it all, is this all there is? The crisis of getting awakens some spiritual questions. When I've gotten to the top and I've exhausted everything that looked good in this life, is there some perpetual novelty? Is there something that never runs out? Is there that water of life that satisfies? Is there something bigger and better that I could reach for and that it would actually satisfy me? And then crisis number two that we've already looked at a little bit more is the crisis of losing. It could be a fire, it could be a death, it could be a perplexity. Um, Sometimes people have that satisfaction in life of always knowing the answers and always being there to fix everyone else's problem and then suddenly they're faced with a challenge that's bigger than them. That's the crisis of losing. They've lost that sense of I've got it together and I've got what it takes. They don't have that anymore. And so all of a sudden, life is not real pleasant anymore. So in the crisis of losing, you may lose things. And that's kind of superficial. You may lose, you know, your car keys. You may lose a, um, a home to fire. Or you may lose a person in your life. You may lose a job, which is your relationship with an employer. You may lose a spouse or a child. And you may lose something that you held on to in religion. Maybe your church disappoints you and suddenly you don't have that place of belonging spiritually anymore. And maybe you can't get whatever you're addicted to anymore. So people lose things that they're holding on to, the things they've been stuffing in the God-shaped void, they lose it, and then what do they ask? Now what? That's the same question the person asked at the top, wasn't it? Notice the question is the same. And so God is using the mountaintop and the valley... To bring a person to the point of realizing that they need who? God. They need something more. And think about all the religious people in your neighborhood. People who are strong Baptists. People who are strong Catholics. People who have great faith and great spiritual experiences in the religious persuasion where they're at. They seem like they're all set spiritually. And they will represent themselves to you that way. But you can know that until they have Jesus as a personal friend, really satisfying the deepest longings of their heart, until they have the truth. Why do I say the truth? Uh, We have a specific truth that we hold very dear, and that is that the seventh day is the Sabbath. Sabbath. Now, why can my neighbor not be happy until they have that? Because they sure look happy on Sunday, don't they? You know, don't they? Why can't they be happy without the truth of the Sabbath? a question, isn't it? We have to go a little bit deeper. What does the Sabbath represent to us? I am God and I don't change and I want to be with you and I am devoting time to be with you. And that's just scratching the surface, right? Now, do people want something that doesn't change? Now, if God really said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and later on he said, remember Sunday to keep it holy, what kind of God would he be? A God who changes. And by the way, keep the commandments. Except for this one I told you to remember. Except for this one I told you to remember. By the way, keeping the commandments is an indication that you love me, and if you love me, you can go to heaven, but if you don't love me, and you're like, well, I better get it right, right? Is it Sabbath? Is it Sunday? Does he change his mind? Is he going to go back to Sabbath a little bit later? What does that say about God's character? Have you ever noticed that advertising will use... Words and, and um, different things that are real solid, you know, like a rock and eternal and eternity. and they use these different words sometimes that, that they just well up within you this, the sense that this is going to be there. It's always been there. Do you think people would want God to be that way? Yeah. So there's this longing. I mean, do people want to get married and have it stay good? Yeah. Do people want to buy a car and have it run for a long time? Yeah. Do people want to sign a document and then have someone keep their word? Yes. Do people want a God who stands behind his word and doesn't change? Yes. And so the truths that we know actually represent a deep connection with a wonderful God. And other religious Creeds, other religious teachings do not represent God's character that way. And so even if someone is a strong Baptist, a strong Catholic, a strong Pentecostal, and seems to have a lot of good things going for them religiously, as long as they're missing that key relationship with Jesus and an understanding of who he is that our message conveys, they are swept, garnished, and empty. And they still need Jesus. So in the crisis of losing, we lose things. We lose people, we lose... Our, our um, comfort with religion, we lose addictions. And then we ask the question now what? Some people won't look up until they are flat on their back. So, what does this mean as you reach your neighborhood? This means that you are watching for people when they go to the top and you are there as their friend to say a few words to them, to pray with them, to give them that book at a time when they're thirsty and hungry for the gospel. It also means that you're watching your neighbors. And you're getting to know them and you're watching the things that matter a lot to them. And if they are crying because their pet died, where are you? You have your arm around their shoulder, if that's appropriate, right? You're saying words like, I'm sorry. You are there to rejoice with them in their successes and to cry with them in their failures or their losses. And so God's people are always there on the scene of action. And that's a big part of reaching our neighborhood is to actually be there with them. The first step is to know where they are and spend time with them. The next step is to watch and to pray and to say, ah, that's a divine appointment. They're at the top of the mountain and they're going down. The very thing they just got, the new computer they just got, the new four-wheeler they just got, the new whatever they just got that they had so much wrapped up in is suddenly disappointing them. And they need someone to ride the, down the hill with them. They need someone to make sense of it. Someone to talk to them about God. Someone who will never, never fail them, never disappoint them. And then when they're at the bottom, they need someone to put their arm around them and, and to help them. Is anyone as hot as I am this morning? Whew, it's hot, isn't it? <laughs> When you lose it all, have you lost it all? People are asking these questions. And in times of crisis, here are questions that people ask. Where is God? Why is this? Why is this happening to to me? Doesn't anyone care? Why me? This is from C.S. Lewis. In The Problem of Pain, it says, God whispers to us, God whispers to us in our pleasures. So how easy is it for people to hear God's voice when they're wrapped up in pleasure? He speaks to us in our conscience, right and wrong, but he does what? Shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so when you see someone that's going through any kind of loss or any kind of trial in their life and they're in your neighborhood, that means God is sending, them, sending you to them. It also means that God is speaking to them with a microphone, with a megaphone. And so when God is speaking to people, he wants you to speak to them as well. So these two crises, what are the two crises again? The crisis of getting and the crisis of losing. These two crises are allowed by God. Remember, they're not caused by you. (laughs) That's not our job, is it? Our job is not to create these crises in people's lives, is it? These are crises that people go through because we live here in a world of sin and because bad things happen because of sin. These crises are going to happen to people, but they are what? Allowed by God to awaken a spiritual interest. What do we do? We watch and we pray and we stay close to people to change them, right? We stay close to people because we want to be with them and to know them. Exactly. Because we, what did we say before? Because we like them, right? We like to be with them. So we watch and pray. Now this is just a little graph here to show how things go up in a person's life. And you know as things are going up, if they don't have Jesus, they are headed for a crisis of getting. When things are going down in a person's life, they are headed for a crisis of Losing. Now, does one person get all the crisis of getting and one person get all the crisis of losing? No, the same person in your neighborhood is going to have their ups. And when is the divine appointment? At the top, just as they start to go down. And then the same person will have their downs. And when's the divine appointment? As they hit the bottom and they start to look up. And so the key to your neighbor's heart is to watch and to pray and to see when, is the, when are these crises that are happening in their life? When can I come close to them and when can I help them? We started out by saying that salt increases a person's thirst for the gospel. We recognize that we are the salt of the earth. That's what the Bible says. So is it all up to God? Are there some more crises, there's some more ways to awaken a spiritual interest in a person that we have more of an active role in? Is there more for us to do? Yes. There are two more wake-up calls, if you will, that God wants to bring to your neighborhood. And they have, these wake-up calls are carried on two feet. You are the one to do the next two things. The first one is to share your personal testimony. The second one is to talk to people about God. When you share your personal testimony with them, you tell them your life story. Yes, no, yes and no. When people are not thirsty for the gospel, they don't want to hear your life story. Guess what they want to see? They want to see what they're looking for. When a person is not thirsty for the gospel, they are still driven by that nameless longing, by that emptiness inside, because they need the gospel. So they see someone who graduated with a particular degree and is starting a career, and they see that that person is happy. What do they want? To be happy. They see that person who's handsome, and they see pictures of their wedding, and what do they want? That belonging, that love, that they think they see in that picture. So what do they try to get? Handsome, beautiful, whatever. All the while, they're looking for happiness, belonging, love, purpose, a future. Now what, peace, thank you, forgiveness. What if they suddenly see a Christian walk in the room and the Christian fails? But that Christian gets up with a smile on their face and still looks forward to the next day. What have they just seen? Everything they were looking for. And you know what they do? They go, wait a minute, well, I don't know, I better, I better finish my college degree. Wait a minute, what did I just see? And what's that putting into their mind? And uh, we need to wrap up this session and, and I'll take a break before our next one, but I want to really bring this down to home before we finish. The third crisis is to see Jesus in someone else's life. Now, people have this in, inner belief that I can get everything I need to get on my own, I don't need God's help. Thank you very much. People are very self-sufficient, and independent. So when God comes knocking and He says, "Give over the control center of your life to Me," they go, "Wait a minute. I got to get my college degree first. Wait a minute. I got to, you know, I got to lose this weight first. You're going to get in my way, God. Wait a minute. I got to, you know, I got to get this car first. I got to go on this cruise first. You know, you're in my way, God." And God keeps knocking on the door and He says, "You know, give up the fight. You know, I'm, I'm the one that you're looking for." And they're like, "No," and. They look at the Christians in their neighborhood. Where do they look? They look at the Christians where? In their neighborhood. They see you walking out your door to go to church. They watch your children. They don't watch your children to see what your children are doing. They watch your children to see what you do. Do you follow me? They don't watch your children to look for little angels. They watch your children to look for parents who are patient. Because if you're impatient, what does that tell the world? I don't have peace. My life is just as out of control as yours. And a little tiny child can prove it. Now, I'm a parent. I'm a new parent. (laughs) So this hits home. They look to see how you treat the ladies. They look to see how you dress. They look to see how you strut your car, your new car. They look to see if you're wrapped up in this life, and if you are, and if you're ruffled and befuddled over the little things of this life, then what is your life wrapped up in? Mm -hmm. Same thing theirs is. You may have Seventh-day Adventists written across your all over your place. You may have bumper stickers and everything and give out literature, but if you say you're just like them, What do they suddenly do? Dismiss that one. I guess that's not where happiness is at. But if they suddenly go, wait a minute, she didn't get upset. Wait a minute, she's helping that guy? What makes her tick? And suddenly is awakened within the heart a desire for the religion that we have. And that doesn't mean that they're all peaches and cream all of a sudden. Because they may get kind of upset. I don't want to be a Seventh Day Adventist like they are. Even if I want everything that they have, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to live that, that stark life that they live. But I sure want what they have, and it wears on them. And I, I would like you and I to be Christians who awaken spiritual interest in our neighborhood. And remember, it comes down to the little itty bitty things. It comes down to the look on your face when people cross you. It comes down to. Your sense of peace and happiness in the midst of turmoil. What happens to you when your car crashes? Are you calm? Are you trusting Jesus? If you are, you are the salt that awakens spiritual interest in other people. And in our next class, we're going to talk about how to bring a person to the point where they desire Bible studies. Okay? From Strangers to Bible Studies will be our next class at uh, 1045. Yes. Let's um, pause for a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being with us here this morning. And I want to thank you that you came to us even when we didn't want you. And Lord, I think about mornings when I wake up a little self sufficient, a little um, rushed and hurried because I have things that I want to do. And Lord, I'm no different from my neighbors on those mornings. And I thank you that you stay close to me during those days. And when everything falls apart because my plans and my power and my resources ran a little thin. I thank you that you stay close and with that still small voice you remind me to pray and to turn to you. And Lord, I ask that you will empower every single person in this room, Lord, to pause and to look at their neighbors in a new way, to see a longing desire in every neighbor for Jesus, and to be willing to stay close to people even when they're not that fun to be around, so that in those moments, those divine appointments, they can be the person who lifts them up, Lord, and helps them to look toward heaven. Give us skill in doing this. We thank you for the next class, Lord, where we will look at how to bring people to a point of desiring Bible studies. Bless us and bring us back, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.